Thanks, Matthew. Let's pray, shall we, as we open that and read it and listen to it together this evening. Father, we thank you for your living word, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, too, that your word, written for us in Scripture, is living and active, able to pierce our hearts to the very center of our being and to speak to us. And so, by your Holy Spirit, would you speak now? And transform us by the grace of Christ and the hope of glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have been here for the last one or two of this series, or if you're perhaps here for the first of this series tonight, a little bit of background to the book of Titus and the theme of the good life. That's the kind of big theme of this letter. Titus, the recipient of this letter, is a church minister on the island of Crete. Um, But Crete, as we've seen if you've been here the last week or two, uh, it was no holiday for Titus. It was a tough assignment because the church there was going through turmoil, both with some wrong teaching, some wrong ideas, and also some fairly uh, godless lifestyles being lived by the Christians in the church that were dishonoring the name of Christ. So we saw at the end of last uh, section, chapter 2, verse 10, that the purpose, the vision of Christian life, of churches being all we should be, is to make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. See that in chapter 2, verse 10. And they clearly weren't always doing that because of the things they were teaching and believing and the way they were living as well. We've seen... There were two particular issues, if if you like, if Titus is a kind of a firefighter being parachuted in to put out some of the fires in this church, one of the big fires is uh, Cretan liberties, uh, a freedom-loving lifestyle that was common in the Greek world, especially in the island of Crete, and church members were indulging in it, their freedoms that, that weren't helpful ones, how they related to things like drink or family life or members of the opposite sex. They were pushing freedoms too far. The other fire raging, almost opposite one, was legalism. It seems a Jewish law, legalism coming into the church, giving rules for how the Christians should behave, but again, rules that weren't helpful, rules that weren't able, didn't have the power to help the Christians actually to live a godly life. So just man-made rules. And Paul urges Titus to teach these church members the good life, or godly living, you might call it, living that's directed towards God. And he doesn't say the way to do that is to give them more rules to follow, because rules, as we've seen, man-made rules are powerless to change our lives. And he doesn't simply condemn the false teaching, though he is told, as we've seen there, to rebuke false teaching with all authority. There's a certain urgency for Titus. The answer, Paul says for Titus, is sound teaching. We saw at the beginning of chapter 1, the truth, the truth about Jesus, that is, that leads to godliness. So the answer is is the gospel, the truth. That's what leads to godliness. That's what changes lives. And we saw in chapter 2, verse 1, that Titus was to teach what's in accord with sound doctrine, to teach the lifestyle that goes with sound doctrine. Now, you've now heard me, a typical vicar, saying, okay, Christians, we've all got to try harder and be better people. 
That's what we've all heard, isn't it? Because that's what we expect churches to teach us, how to pull our moral socks up, how to be better people. And that's what we think that Titus is being told to do for his church members. Tell them all to be better. And if you're like me, you think, well, in that case, I'm a failure. Because I know I'm meant to live a better life, uh, but I can't. I I know I'm meant to be self-controlled, but I can't always control my desires. I'm not meant to get impatient with people, but I sometimes do. I'm meant to resist just spending money without any control on it, but I can't always resist. I know that I shouldn't drink too much, but maybe just one drink too many, a little too often, is what I end up having. Someone quipped, didn't they? I can resist anything except temptation. And I think we'd probably all echo that. We we know what it's like to be told to live better lives, but we struggle. We fail, don't we? And we try things that will help with that. So, New Year resolutions... We try resolutions to give up this and give up that, uh, that that'll make us better. Or we go on a diet, or we try even a spiritual plan, like we get up early to pray every morning for three hours every day. But again, because we're weak inside, these rules we give ourselves don't meet the real problem. Because the problem's in here in our hearts. That needs to change if we're to live the good life. So how do these things connect? How does the sound doctrine, the truth that leads to Godless, how does it do that? How does it change me in a way that rules and regulations simply cannot do? That's what tonight's about. It's a wonderful passage. It's got some real golden verses. We're going to look at them in the next few minutes together. Now, the kind of nutshell is that there are two key ideas in tonight's passage. Uh, The grace that appeared and the glory that will appear. So if you kind of, that's all to take home in terms of the the mental nuts and bolts, that's all you need. The grace that appeared in the past and the glory that will appear in the future. And we'll see how those things are life-changing. But those are the two big ideas. And these are two events that Paul says... They define Christian life. They define how truth leads to godliness. If you get these things and you hold them in your heart, they will begin to transform you. They're life-changing. I don't know what events in your past have been life-changing for you. Being born was probably one of them. Um, But maybe a significant um, uh, relationship you've been through, or perhaps a bereavement, a hard thing, or perhaps an achievement that you've uh, Man, you pass those exams. They got you to the next stage. Looking ahead, you'll have events that you're living today because of those things in the future. You know, maybe you just got engaged. You're, you're working towards the wedding. Or maybe you have exams coming up, and therefore that's affecting, hopefully affecting, how you're spending your time today, revising. So an event in the past and an event in the future, it can affect, can't it, how we live today. And that's the point with the grace that appeared. And our second point, we're going to see the glory that will appear. A past event, grace, a future event, glory, they, says Paul, will transform today, the present. Is that okay so far? Well, let's dive in, have a look at the first of these two things, the grace that appeared. Verse 11, start of our reading. The grace of God, says Paul, 
that brings salvation has appeared to all men, to all people. The grace of God has appeared. Now grace, it's a Christian jargon word, it simply means God's free gift of his love and goodness towards us. We sung about it just now. We come empty-handed. His grace gives us all we need. He does not ask that we love him first or we are good enough first to receive his love. He loves us just as we are. He died for us just as we are. That is what grace is, the free gift of God's goodness. It's a grace that appeared. So he's talking about a past event here. It offers salvation to all people. Uh, He's not saying that, by the way, that all people are therefore saved. You need faith in Christ to be saved. But he is saying all kinds of people are now being offered salvation. It is not exclusive. It's not just for the over 50s or indeed the under 21s. It's not just for the rich and the mighty. It's also for the despised and the lowly. It's not just for the educated it's for the ordinary person. It's not just for the respectable person, though respectable people need grace too. It's also for what we'd think of as the morally wayward person. It's for all people. And then he says, grace trains us. Grace trains us. It teaches us, he says, to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live... Self-controlled, righteous, and godly lives in this present age. We're back, aren't we, at the heart of this letter again. How to live the good life. How does truth lead to godliness? He's telling us this is how. Grace will train you. It will teach you to say no and to say yes. To say no to the ungodly, to say yes to the good, godly, healthy life. if, If you want to lose weight, you have to begin to say no to chocolate, don't you? And you have to say yes to the running machine. And Paul says, well, grace trains you. A bit like a personal trainer might train you with fitness. If you want to live in grace, you have to say no to ungodly thinking, selfishness, lack of self-control, and yes to doing the right thing in how you relate to God and to others and to yourself. Self-controlled, righteous, godly lives. Grace is a trainer. That's the the gift that God's given us. It's his grace that will teach us this new life. And how does it do that? Well, the appearing of grace in verse 11, it doesn't simply mean the, the birth of Christ, Christmas, though that is the appearing of grace. He specifically means, if you look at verse 14, the cross. Verse 14 explains what it means. The cross Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what's good. See the the front half of that sentence? All about the cross. Christ gave himself for us, that's his death on the cross, to redeem us, to buy us back, to pay a ransom, that's the word, to pay a ransom for us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people. So that word there, to redeem us, it tells us that, that when grace appeared on the cross in the death of Jesus, the cross is where Jesus pays the price for our sins, but actually, the word, it's about setting free. 
to redeem us, to also set us free from the power of our sins. To purchase our freedom, not just from the penalty, but the power of sin in our lives. Truth leads to godliness because grace begins to set us free to live a new way. So here in the cross, here in grace, there in the past, on the, on the cross of Christ, there is the power to begin to be self-controlled, to begin to please God, to begin to be godly in a godless culture, to overcome self-indulgence and anger and lust and all the wrong desires that plague my heart, to begin to be set free. Look at it this way. If the goodness of God our creator taught us to obey him as his creatures just because he's he's so good he made us just that is a sign of love if the goodness of his creation teaches us to obey him how much more does the grace of God in saving us giving his life for us train us to love him and serve him as our redeemer we obey him as our creator but we We are redeemed. We love him so much more, even, because he's our redeemer. You may have seen the recent TV adaptation of Les Miserables. And you might remember, if you saw that, how Valjean, the escaped convict, spends the night with the hospitality of a local bishop who puts him up for the night. And in the morning, he runs off and steals the bishop's silver candlesticks. When he's caught, the police bring him back to the bishop for punishment the bishop amazingly forgives him, shows him grace. Well, he didn't deserve it. The bishop insists that he goes free and hands him the candlestick, saying, oh, you forgot these. And he says to him, your soul is purchased for God. And from that moment onwards, Valjean's life is never the same. His heart is changed by the act of redemption, by the price the bishop's paid, to change his future. Grace trains us, says Paul, because God, Christ, gave himself to buy us, to purchase us our freedom. So grace trains my heart to love Jesus more and sin less, to obey him because he's more precious to me, and to find temptation less attractive and precious. One old preacher put it this way. He said, Christ died to make you peace, but he also died to make you holy. He atones, that means he pays for our sin on the cross, but he also refines. That's right, isn't it? Grace doesn't just forgive us, it trains us. It doesn't just atone, it refines. It's life-changing. So that's how grace appeared at the cross. There's one other way in which grace has appeared through the cross of Christ, and that's the language of the covenant. The grace appeared in the cross, and the new covenant Christ has made. You see the second half of verse 14. I haven't really touched on it yet. To purify for himself, Christ died, to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what's good. See the thing again there? How can I learn, through the truth, to live a life of godliness? Truth that leads to godliness through grace. And now we're learning, it's because somehow on the cross, Jesus has taught me, taught my heart, 
to think a new way, to be eager, not to be selfish now, but eager to do good. How does that work? How does God change my heart? That's where the covenant comes in. Now, it's a Bible word, covenant. Think about promises. Like when a couple get married, they make promises to each other. They make a covenant with each other before God to keep those promises, to love and cherish and obey and so on. And that's a covenant in, in human language. God makes a covenant with us. In fact, he's made two covenants in the Bible. God made a covenant with Abraham that through circumcision, through coming under the old covenant, God would bless Abraham's family and Abraham would follow God and make God his own God. But the old covenant contained a new covenant promised within it, made possible by new hearts, not just circumcision, not an outward thing, but a new heart. And so in Ezekiel, one of the promises of that covenant appears, Ezekiel 36. The new covenant in Ezekiel is described like this. I will cleanse you, says God, from all your impurities. I will put a new heart in you. He says it's a heart of flesh, not a heart of stone. And you will be my people, and I will be your God. I wonder if you see there the parallels between what Paul has said in Titus 2, verse 14, and what was promised of the covenant in Ezekiel. I'll cleanse you from your impurities. Christ gave himself to purify for himself a people. Eager to do good, Ezekiel says, I will put a new heart in you. That's how I begin to be eager to do good, not eager to turn away from God, but to love him. And a people who are Christ's very own, says Paul in Titus, and Ezekiel promised, God said, you will be my people, and I will be your God. A new covenant, purified, set apart for God, and a heart now desiring good, not evil. Those things, says Paul, Christ has done for us on the cross. He's begun the new covenant in his blood. He's given us a new heart to live a new way. So grace trains us. We look back at grace and it changes our hearts because it shows us the power of the cross where Christ died to set us free from the power of sin. And it shows us the new covenant Christ died to renew our hearts as well as to redeem our sins. So you see, what that's saying, Paul's saying to Titus, teach your people this, that if I continue to indulge myself, to follow my desires all the time, without conscience, without thinking, without seeking the Spirit's help, I'm forgetting I've been set free. I haven't got to live that way anymore. If I continue to rely on rules to improve my Christian life, I'm forgetting that I've now got a new heart eager to do good. I don't need man-made rules. Every day I can ask the Lord to make me more grateful that he gave himself to purify me, more aware that he's made me free, he set me free from the sins that held me, and more renewed in heart to be eager to do good. We look back to grace that appeared. Second event, and much shorter this one, We look ahead to the glory that will appear. 
the glory that will appear. This is verse 13. Paul says, So grace trains us to say no to ungodliness, to say yes to godly life. Verse 13, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's verse 13. You notice that I've made a note about the, the translation. The Bible in, in the seats, the one that we have in our seats here, has that very slightly differently. It simply says the, the appearing of our glorious God and Savior. Jesus Christ. It's a subtle difference in the the newer translation of what's called the NIV Bible, 2011, that translation, which is the one on the screen, the appearing, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The focus, and this is quite a helpful translation on the screen, the focus, you see, is not so much on um, Jesus appearing as God and Savior, though he is and he will, it's on When Jesus appears, what's actually appearing is the glory of God himself. It's the appearing of God's glory that we wait for when Jesus returns, when Jesus appears. You see, Roman emperors like to make spectacular appearances. The same word is actually used in in ancient writing as is used by Paul. They appeared on the steps of their royal palace. They appeared as they rode into a city victorious in battle. And they did it so they would be rewarded by the praise and the glory given to them by the adoring people, by their subjects. Different with Christ. Paul says, Christ appearing will not be to gain glory from us, but to reveal God's glory to us. Very different thing. We will wonder. We'll be in awe of his beauty and glory when he appears. And it won't be the appearing of a, of a mere mortal wearing emperor's clothes, it'll be appearing of Jesus, the word made flesh, wearing divine glory, the glory of heaven. And we live, says Paul, in the light not just of the grace of the cross, but of the glory of his coming. We look forward to that. We live knowing that one day we'll see that if we're Christians. We wait for it, says Paul. So there's, there's those two events, those two key dates, the past, the grace of the cross, the future, the glory of his appearing. And that's why Paul says in verse 15, these are the important things to teach because these things are life-changing. They change hearts. They change lives. These are the things to teach, verse 15, and to encourage and to rebuke with all authority because, you see, the Christian life lived in grace is rooted not in man-made rules, because they can't change us. Not in morals that we've picked up from our culture, because they may be good or bad, but they won't change our hearts. Being decent, being nice, being respectful. It's rooted in the gospel, isn't it? In what Christ has done on the cross, and what Christ will reveal when he comes. So what about us? What does this mean? How is this good news? How will this change our hearts? Well, here are some ways that this is such, such good news. Four crucial truths for us to take home and to hold in our hearts and minds this week as we battle with temptation, with self-control, with desire, and as we seek to live a good, godly life. Here's the first one. Christians are not out of touch 
with the world because we're, in fact, connected to life-changing power. You see, I may think to myself how irrelevant we are as Christians because we live in the past, at the cross of Christ years ago, the future, the appearing of Christ, we don't know when that will be, and we're not in the present. We've seen, haven't we, actually, it's that grace in the past and that glory in the future that make our lives so exciting in the present, that life change comes in the present. Paul's message is that past grace changes life today. Future glory changes life today. And you can try self-help books and mindfulness, all the things that are trendy. They may sound good, but they have no power like the gospel to change our lives, our hearts. So don't believe that lie that the gospel doesn't change our lives. It does. Life-changing power. Second thing, we're not doomed to fail because we are equipped for godliness by grace. Grace trains us, teaches us to say no to ungodliness and yes to God's way. If I feel the power of desire in my heart this week, if I feel peer pressure from school, from uni friends, if I'm challenged by the behavior of someone at work this week, and I want to shout back, I can know that I am being trained by grace. The converted slave trader, John Newton, uh, who wrote the great hymn Amazing Grace, um, left behind a life of, uh, of selling slaves to be a Christian minister. He said, I am not what I want to be. I'm not what one day I will be. But by the grace of God, I'm not what I once was. That is the power of grace to train us, to equip us. Third thing, we are not only forgiven, but we're also trained by grace. Grace doesn't just say, here, have a free pass to heaven, that's it, you're on your own. Grace says, here is the free gift of forgiveness, and I will help you, I will train you to live a new life in Christ. It's very easy, I think, to portray Christianity uh, as as simplistic, a gospel of personal salvation, free place in heaven, and live as you like today. That's not the gospel. The gospel is life-changing today and in eternity. It doesn't just set us free from our sins. It sets us free from their power over our hearts as well. It doesn't just bring us out of the kingdom of darkness. It brings us into the kingdom of Christ where he reigns over our hearts. We are trained by grace. That's a great, great gift. And then lastly, we're not sentenced to eternity in this present age with all its frustrations and difficulties and letdowns, but we are living in the hope of eternity. We have a hope, we have a future, we have a glory ahead. There's been a bit bit of a movement in recent years in in, uh, church Christian thinking circles to focus on the present. It's come from a a right suspicion of always thinking about heaven and not about the present. Pie in the sky when you die, that kind of idea. It's been right that we've said, no, hang on, the gospel must change life today as well, and it does. It's good to think about the the good life in this present age. But notice, Paul says, we can only learn to live a godly life today in the present If we also fix our eyes on tomorrow, we wait for the blessed hope of the glorious appearing 
of our God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. So this life can, in Christ, it should be godly and good. A life of transformation in Christ. But it's not glorious, not fully glorious yet. It won't be that until Christ appears and we see real glory. And for that day, we long and wait and pray. Let's pray now. moment of quiet for us to think of perhaps the things that challenge us in our personal lives. Things that we find it hard to be faithful in, to be self-controlled, to be God-directed, to do what's right. Let's ask his help. Let's thank him for grace of the cross and the covenant that sets free and transforms and for the hope, for the confidence of his appearing. So Lord Jesus, we thank you that you gave yourself to redeem us that you will appear one day in glory, the glory of God himself. And so may your grace teach and train us today, this week. Set us free to be more self-controlled. Fill us with hope to look forward more, that we might live in the light of what you have done and of one day, your glorious appearing. We ask this in Jesus' precious, glorious name. Amen.